Yad Ishadne Shay Yaha Raju Willie and Shia Tapa Hinsa, Machine Bassas Chain Kilachine, that's a chedos, my son. Aro Tobas, Azi, that's another. I could eye the Nensa. Greetings, my people. I am born of the water edge land and born for the salt people. My maternal grandparents are the Red House clan. My paternal grandparents are two that came to the water. That is how I identify myself as a human being. Yade Wasson, she Albert Smith and she. A she in slow, so not Jenny Bush's sheen. Also, that's a shake eight my name is Albert Smith. I'm a Navajo. I'm a salt land, born for the black streak in the forest, and the Spanish clan, and the meadow clan. Was a chain. Also, that's a that's a this is our land and what a beautiful country it is. And I imagine you agree with that, Albert. Yes, I do. It is a beautiful country. My look desolate, but that is what made us durable, endurance, and compatible in all areas of life. What a most incredible place to grow spiritually, physically, and mentally. So go ahead and tell us a little bit about this, Albert. We have gone through many things, just like Mother Earth. Mother Earth has changed as well as us. It has made us to survive. It has helped us to endure all weathers. The national ways of life, the natural ways of life. A point of view like that, you know, that just clearly answers one of the many ways why the Navajo Code talkers fought for this country because of what you just said, Albert. We're sending off our first Navajos into help out with the Second World War. We've been called on to defend Mother Earth. We left the family behind, left our children, our brothers and sisters, our elders. And one of the key things was that kept these soldiers together was the mutual relationships 
the essence of their clan system. Isn't that true, Albert? Yes, it is true. Because through that, I guess, it really gives you a tremendous sense of personal strength and loyalty and integrity. And all these qualities are what you guys demonstrated. Yes, it does. And it nourishes us as well as giving, giving us the forward movement, the encouragement. You know, and sometimes when we uh, when we want to have that, and in order to maintain that, sometimes there are certain things that have to happen to stand up for those sovereign rights and freedom and things like that. And I guess this is part of what Wind Talker is about. That's right. You know, as I reflect on my life, Albert, a lot of times I think about how I first got involved, and I've always stated that in the past. I never really had any ambition to act, but when opportunity arose that I did audition, the first time I auditioned was December 7, 1999, up in Durango, Colorado, when I had planned on actually auditioning with a couple of my nephews, but in the end, I decided not to do it. But again, moments later, I was really convinced after my nephews were very persistent that I auditioned for it. And so that's when my journey began from Durango, Colorado, just from the foothills of the Forsaker Mountain up in the north. And then since then, um, for the next six, seven months, I got to witness and experience and live um, a dream, a, a part of life event that um, so many people desire to do, I guess. And I always kept that in the back of my mind. And so because of that, I always uh, did what I could to approach my whole experience, just everything from meeting people down to the performing the acting roles and things like that as a classroom setting. And it's been a wonderful experience. I got involved in it because there was it. It was an interview made, and I didn't know I was to be picked. But they interviewed co-talkers. They interviewed some of the other people. And then I got a call one day to, to, to come down to meet with the, uh, with the assistant director and some of the others. Did some further review interviews, and I just went along. The next call I got was 
to be in Los Angeles on certain days. Moving out to Hawaii with the film was being made to assist with it, be a consultant on the uh, the use of the code. Understand you went above and beyond, Corporal. Gunny? I want to put you up for the Silver Star as well. God bless you, son. Raise your right hand. I state your full name. I, Ben Yazid, do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And I will obey the orders of the President of the United States. And I will obey the orders of the President of the United States. And the orders of the officers appointed over me. And the, and the orders, orders of the officers appointed. Jap Hago, who can give me the code word for tank. At school, I used to listen to some of the instructors, some of the uh, people who were recruiting on the reservation. They would uh, interview some of the students, and they would got them into the military. They gave them a military introduction. They gave them close order drills and other things for a whole school year, 
1942-1943. And during that time, I learned quite a bit about it, and I also learned the uh, working of the Marine Corps. But the coded language was never mentioned, just the military portion of the training. And so the, their habits, their ways of working sort of interest me, including their uniform. And so to get into it, I, uh, I was only 15, just in the eighth grade. And one of my brother, who's next oldest, was 17. He and I talked to our father and said, well, why don't I move my age two years up? Then I can, uh, I can also go with you. We can stay together during the war. So we asked our father, and he said, okay. So I, in the uh, registration, during the time when I was being uh, inducted, I moved my age up two years, the same way with my brother. I moved mine from 15 to 17. He moved his age from 17 to 19. What we didn't know was that we were uh, involving our sister, who was the, would be the same age as my elder brother. Watch this. And they made them a twin. He, she didn't know it until after the war. What foxed us up was after we finished the boot camp in San Diego, as soon as we were finished, we were waiting for our next advance training. There was a sea battle going on with the Japanese in the Pacific. And there were five brothers serving on one, one heavy ship, either a battleship or a cruiser. And they were heavily damaged, and the captain abandoned, asked them to abandon ship. And when the four brothers got to the top deck, one of the young brothers was missing, who was working in the engine room. And without a second thought, they took off down to, to fetch their brother out of the bottom of the ship. In the process, the uh, ship blew, that portion of the ship blew up and all five brothers were perished. And so that ended our plan of staying together. They said, no more, no more brothers serving together. They separated us. My other brother served in the second division. I served in the fourth division. Very interesting. I remember Albert telling me that on set, I think we were somewhere on the island of Oahu. A lot of times we went up into the hills and we sit there and we talk, exchange stories. And when he told me that, it was like, wow. So in that sense, I always see Albert as actually physically participating in, in the events of um, making of history. Yeah, especially during this wartime.
amazing. You know, to my understanding, uh, when the code talkers were after World War II and when they were returning home, they took, um, I guess, what you would call is like a, a code of silence or an oath of silence, things like that. So they were clearly instructed that not to discuss their, how they participated, especially with their use of code talker, not to talk about that area with anyone else after the war. And so for the next over 20 years that they kept all this silence. And it wasn't until I believe in 1968 that the, their secrecy was declassified. And since 1960 up to now, which is what, uh, several decades later, the first original 29 code talkers received the gold medal of honor just recently, and then the others received a silver medal. And one of the, I guess the most common question that's asked of me is, why did it take so long to recognize and acknowledge these guys for what they did in this, in the war? And uh, I reflect on that a lot, and I think, why, why, why? Because one, I just think that their personal loyalty and integrity to themselves and to the country were clearly demonstrated just for them to maintain their silence for several years. And I always think that when the information was declassified, just the characters of these um, co-talkers, they were not really the one to say, it's been declassified, now I want recognition, I want this and that. They didn't. It took, it took time for the family and those people that had the interest to bring recognition and to acknowledge these gentlemen for how they participated. It took, it took, it took that long to build that momentum and to reach a point where you would bring first beginning with local, then national, now I believe it's going to be global attention and recognition of the co-talkers. Well, Japs are pretty much busted. Every code we've thrown at them, Corporal. At the time, when I came back from the uh, war, my elders mentioned that I should leave my war stories home. And for that reason, I didn't really question it. But the, uh, it came out that if you had pictures of war, that was only for the ear. Then, for example, the TV, they have the pictures and they have the sound. One is for the ear and one's for the eyes, but they said, where's the, uh, the smell of war? Where's the taste of war? Where's the touch of war? said, when you leave something like that out, if you're doing any good for the children, you have to use all the five senses 
If you don't use all the five senses, you're misleading the children. And coming to think of it now, and sometime, it really showed what they were talking about. Look what happened in Littleton, Colorado, Oregon, Tennessee, New Mexico, Arizona. Just recently, during the filming of this movie, it happened in California. Then just recently in Arizona, those are some of the things that children were looking for. And that was our reason for our elders to tell us not to tell the war stories. And then that also our elders tell the young mothers, when you're angry, don't feed your babies because what you're feeling, uh, you're feeding it to the child. And pretty soon, the child will have that hard feeling, that strong feeling that you had will be in the stomach, on the hardness of the, the food, and they'll cry. The baby's telling you why the baby's crying but you won't know it. So this is why our elders told us not to do it. And they say, if you're cooking, like for example, if you uh, tell the war stories to the cooks, they might have lost a brother, they might have lost a loved one or a close relative. And they would have that sad feeling when they're cooking, they cook, they put all that feeling into whatever they, what sadness, the hardness of life, the harsh life, into their food. And when they eat it, then the same transformation takes place. You feed meanness to the family. That's why many of us did not tell our relatives, didn't tell the rest of the people, because they were not combatant. Just only war, things like that can be told between the two individuals and between others that have seen and been a part of the war. I'm guessing the same orders you ain't liberty to tell me are the same orders I ain't liberty to tell you. Tell the thing, huh? Yeah, democracy, Sergeant. It's the Marines. Yeah. Yeah. I guess um, that's a clear example of looking at the cultural values, traditional practices, and language, and their spirituality, and things like that. And it's about the whole concept, what you're talking about, Albert, because Navajos traditionally even today it's when there's a time if there's going to be exposure to something dealing with war um, traditionally those people are prepared they go through certain ceremonial 
advance that prepares them for the war. It's like it separates them from the maybe like the general society. So that preparation prepares people that go to war. I guess what you're saying, Albert, is like um, because you, the code talkers and people like that, gone to war being prepared for when they came back, they were like spiritually prepared for this event. So coming back, it was not intended or meant to be shared with um, people back home and because they're they are the ones that are that were not prepared and you have to be spiritually, mentally and physically grounded in order to endure such events and stories like that. And that's so good, Albert. I really interesting. This is one of the things that I've been doing the past thirteen years since I retired. That's you know, what you just talk about, I, I really understand, and I guess that's one of the key questions, key answers as far as when people ask, why did it take so long for these people to, um, to get recognized and to be acknowledged? And it's because of the way the, a lot of times the way the co-talkers held that within themselves because they were aware of the um the damage that it could possibly do to their people and the children and how that it could influence and that itself still demonstrates to me the the role i guess like of a warrior now a warrior yeah yeah they protect family and mm -hmm. values and things like that and part of that protection is to ensure to the best of your ability to maintain that harmony within the family and then outward yeah The chin isn't. A lot of times people ask, well, they would say, was there a bodyguard? Mm -hmm. Why was the bodyguard? Did you have me to ask me? Did you have bodyguard? I said, no, we didn't have bodyguard. Then they'll ask, why did the film have bodyguards? Oh, well, a lot of people don't quite understand the military system. You know, in the military system, the central of military war operation is communication. And secret documents. And it, 
in emergent in a time of emergency when the enemy is ready to to overcome the uh, <laughs> the communication center, the the nerves and the brain of the military operations. When an enemy is ready to take over the uh, center of that operations, they destroy first the radio. They destroy the secret documents. And in a sense, the code, code talkers, were the radio, the important messages, communication. They were also the secret documents. And so, according to the, to the film, to my understanding, the film was made on the basis of that. That to, uh, if a code talker was ready to be captured, then the guard would have no alternative but to kill the code talker to avoid the capture and to protect the secret documents. I think that is the total essence of the, the film, the way I see it. Yeah, and um, having prior military experience, you, Albert, and I had, I spent some time in the military too, and I can really relate to what you're talking about because within the military, you have all this intelligence, whether that's in form of radio or certain documents or even weapons and things like that and and in the event that should these fall actually fall into the hands of the wrong people it's like you learn about it from basic training and throughout your whole military um tour that you destroy those things especially like the weapons if you were put in a situation where the tank was gonna, um, you know, you, you're gonna have to somehow destroy that so the enemy does not take that and use it as an advantage to come back and defeat you. Same thing with radios and other intelligent methods or system. And I think um, it, common sense-wise, I, I would think that almost anyone would, um, put in a certain predicament like that, and we'll probably do the same thing. Yeah. Now I'm gonna be with the second squad, and Sergeant Fertino here is gonna be with the first. We're gonna be sniffing out enemy positions, radiant back locations. I guess it turns all the way around, and just like, for example, the, uh, the Japanese knew the Morse code, which was the cinder of the armed forces, the American armed forces uh, combat operations. If the Japanese did not know the Morse code, then they wouldn't have known what was being planned for, against them. And so they counteract the uh, operations of the military. And so in our case, it's just a new, a new system that was come up, that had been used to come up. The system that uh, our language was used only, it's not an everyday language. 
It was a military language which was devised by those first 29. What's amazing about that is the first 29 original code talkers are the ones that really developed that. And they're, when I look back and look at all that document and look at all the way it was devised and things like that, and I can't help to notice, but the effectiveness of that code, not only that, but I think about the, the code talkers who developed those, that they were like genius especially when you consider that that time period too uh, extremely intelligent very knowledgeable and strongly knowledgeable with their cultural and traditional knowledge and their language yet at the same time within i guess in essence the western world western education and things like that because you had to really combine those two to make this thing even more stronger Yes, it did. And because a lot of the codes are based on a lot of strong cultural things within the Navajos. What am I doing mm-hmm. in this uniform? It's my war too, Sergeant. I'm so, I often think about that. Yeah, it is. It, uh, like the way they would devise the alphabet. The only, tr- the only thing was that Instead of just having 26 alphabet, they come up with 66 alphabet. And yeah. they take all the, the names <laughs> of the plants, the animals, names of uh, minerals, and even the use of plant system mm-hmm. to tell the various different military units, like the company, battalion, regiments, and the divisions, and even the squad. I notice even all the like the military personnel, like the officers, from second lieutenant all the way up to the generals. generals. They all had their own words. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. And uh, you know, when something I guess a lot of people think about, and it's come across my mind a lot of time, is when you look at it historically, it's like you can actually follow a pattern. What I'm in the sense that that um, how for for many years that there was an attempt to actually eradicate or eliminate or terminate native traditional practices, cultural values, language, all the the essence of that identity and attempts that were made through like so many different federal Indian uh, governments federal policies and programs and things like that and so many of them were able to survive and and then all of a sudden you use this language I mean that to me is like if uh, to me just to hold when you understand that history and then knowing that your language, the Navajo language, played a major role, I can't help but just to feel a tremendous sense of a strong self-identity and just to be so proud of it and be motivated to go out and 
learn about it and learn to speak the language and things like that. The war. I want you to write back. I've got nothing to write about, Rita. Come on, you gotta have something. It's a beautiful place. No, it's not. Maybe we should just go. Oh, God. Why? Because you're here? Because you made it back and those other guys didn't? Hey! I feel sorry for those guys, Andrews. I really do, but I, I feel worse for you. either. I like my friend there. I think she's Gary Cooper or something. He's a funny kid. A good kid. I taught him how to ride horses. We've known each other a long time. I take care of him. Oh, white horse. <laughs> hey, Joe. Come on in, Joe. Get a, get a shot. Group shot before we take off. He used to uh, bother us at the mission school, particularly because I, was, I went to a mission school, and if I was caught speaking my language, sometimes I had to, after having so many, so many points, 
who have been caught speaking my language would be punished by working, shoveling coal, or working in a, in a butcher shop on a weekend, Saturday, Sunday, besides attending to the Bible, Bible studies and whatnot. It wasn't so severe in the Bureau of Schools because they, there were too many of us in the Bureau of Schools to keep track of us, and there weren't that many uh, teachers and advisors and counselors involved. There was just very limited numbers. And so they didn't pay close attention to us. But sometimes I'd leave the, the school compound and talk to myself or talk to the lizards and some of the, some of the animals or play with them. And sometimes if I was lucky enough, our buddies would we'd wander off to do some other things away from the schools. So we talk Navajo and not be bothered so much with having to worry about somebody looking over our shoulders, say, who are speaking Navajo or English. You know, something real interesting is I went to boarding school too, and then I went to public school for the, until I got out of the high school. And, and during that time, one of the things that I remember is being told now and then by certain people that my ability to speak Navajo and that Navajo thought was kind of limiting me from being able to, to perform at the standards of certain Western educational academic standards and things like that. And, uh, and when I would go home, my mom and dad, they had a totally different view. Their view was that it was a blessing that we learned how to, that we knew how to speak Navajo and English. And putting them together, they said it was even stronger. And at school, and a lot of times, what they were saying was, no, you got to have one of those to be stronger. But at home, it was like they were putting it together. I look at that and relate that to the concept of the code where you took the Navajo language and the English language and put them together and made the most appropriate and the most effective secret code to defeat an enemy. I mean, that is how strong it was. Mm-hmm. Whereas, I guess a person could write a thesis on this or a dissertation, yeah. but um, because comparing that with the school system again and you know, if, if it was only English, you know, the, the codes were being broken. Um, anyway, but here was a, a time in history when both language, both thoughts, both culture, both, um, both sides combined together to, to create something so powerful. Yes. Well, I guess it uh, really come right, coming right down to it that one of the 
central point of our whole, even in the destructive form, destructive activities of the world, our language, both in English and Navajo, showed to the general public of the world that the language of the people are important and that it was also to show that the continuity, the establishment and the beauty of each language of the world is important. No matter whether it be our enemy at the time, it has changed the ways and the lives of many people. And even the cultural and the various measures of their being has changed. Look at all the people that have come to the United States, even right now in the conflict, without knowing some of those languages, without knowing some of the styles, would have been very difficult to get along with other parts of the world. That's so true because uh, in Navajo, Albert, they say, from the tip of her tongue, it is sacred. They say that, and that makes a lot of sense what you're talking about because language was made to communicate. To communicate in a way to establish good relationships and bond and things like that. On later from the beginning, if it was used correctly, it achieves so many beautiful things. And if it's not used right, then, of course, it can bring a lot of um, destructions and negative things. And I think that in this case, and especially in your involvement with the war and what this film is about and things like that, is it's the strength and the beauty of language, not only the Navajo, but as well as English, yeah. and putting them together into making it very powerful. Yeah. Martino! Cover me! Why don't you get down?
Personally, um, I participated in the making of this film, uh, not for monetary gain or anything like that, but but having military experience myself and being in certain situations in the past within the military and things like that, and there's certain things that um, that you do within the military, and when you come back to civilian life and it just gives you so much appreciation for the the respect that is shown within the military, um, the bonding and things like that, and and you kind of miss that, and you wish somehow you can share your own experience with the public, and so that they can possibly maybe. Uh, in certain cases, it can make them a better person. And I think this war, that's what it, part of it is, um, it's a necessity that the world see this because it, it deals with not only history in the sense of global history, United States history, and in history, Navajo history, and somewhere, somehow, it all connects us to this event. And I think we all need to know that because of what these, what happened. Um, sometimes what it has to take for us to maintain our freedom and sovereignty and certain rights and things like that. It binds the human, the human spirit. It holds that together. And it also brings the individual that he's not alone, no matter in what kind of a struggle no matter in what kind of difficulties. He's never alone. He's always having a friend. They, uh, they pulled the individuals together. Even in, in the last moment, they pulled each other together. You then know the value of life. It brings a deeper feeling, a spiritual binding. And so, less, you might say, an inner feeling between a combat men it begins from there on to the end of your days you treasure not only one another but you also treasure your country the sharing of 
Everything that grows, everything, the total environment, including the atmosphere. Sometimes I think about going through all that. I think about the uh, the rockets, which the scientists send up into the air. And in relation to that, I think of talk, thinking back about my uh, my grandparents and the others who spoke to me about a lot of things. They'd say, be careful. It took your mother nine months to get you ready. It took nine months after you were born before your mother replenished all that she had used to bring you into the world. And I think of that, and in relation to that, I think of the scientist. And I always think of Mother Earth in relation to Mother. If it took Mother nine months to bring forth all the energies, all the vital parts of me, my heart, my brain, my eyesight, and all that into effective spiritual and also a physical body. Then do the scientists think about that when they send a rocket through our atmosphere? How long does Mother Earth take to replenish all the air that has burned up. And how long will it take for Mother Earth to replenish what has been burned up? How long are we, as humans, donating our precious air for experiment? You know, Albert, that is like a, a strong Navajo cultural, traditional, spiritual thought. And I think about how in so many ways throughout history, that way of thinking, that way of thought has been misinterpreted, misrepresented in so many different ways, so many different fashions. And so I was just thinking about the Albert. I was just thinking about that. You know, looking back at this, um, for a lot of military, for yourself and for myself and veterans out there, I think one of the things that we share is when we were in the military, once we get out, we kind of tend to maybe leave that behind. And then we go through certain, so many different life events and we forget a lot of those things. But for some reason, we always remember the, 
the faces of the, the people and some of the things that we did together with the people that were within our platoon or company or battalion and brigade or even division and things like that. And I think that that's what part of this film is about. And, and a lot had to do what has to do with the bonding that you have out there when you become dependent, when everyone becomes interdependent among each other in order to accomplish missions and certain things. You've got to effectively work together. And despite the fact a lot of the, the stresses that can occur out there, um, one of the belief is there's always a way to do something. It's like when someone gives you a mission, I remember, it's like, I got a mission for you. Go do it. If you come up and say, um, but uh, if you try to make an alibi or something, they'll come back and say, well, that's your mission. And how you do it, you better do it. But that is your mission. It teaches you to think like, I got to do this. I don't know how, but you're ordered to do this. And you start using your senses, everything from your communication skills to your intellects, I guess, trying to be creative. And eventually you figure out to how to accomplish those certain things. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think that's part of the bonding within the, um, within the military like this. <laughs> Shit. Damn. Yeah, I mean, my old boy. Now I'm on Saipan with this giant Zippo strapped to my back and I'm roasting human beings. Why well, I volunteered. Beyond me. Damn, I'm proud to be here. My whole family's been in the Corps. My old man, he's a lifer. An ass kicker on the land and on the sea. Around the house, too. And maybe now back off. Papa's up. The, um, in the making of Wind Talker in the film, there's several things that are pointed out Navajo cultural values, traditional practices, and or spirituality and things like that. And in, um, one of the beautiful things about it is the effort that was put forward by MGM and producers, directors, and just everyone about trying to capture the identity of the Navajo in about as accurate as you could possibly get. And one of those things was relates to the cultural and traditional things that are that are seen in the film. And tell us a little bit about that, Albert. Oh, that is the traditional ways of uh, living and uh, having to do with the spiritual 
hardening of the individual. You have separated the individual, that is his physical body and his spiritual world. He's no longer in his physical body. This is then he, the separation of the physical and the spiritual. And living among them. It is difficult for for us because we don't totally associate with one another during those periods. And so in the film there's a time when that is presented. I keep trying, but uh, I'm here to kill Japs, not Marines. You have the individual being blackened, so there's a sense that you're learning to deal and understanding the spiritual reality and the physical realities. And you live within the realms in both both worlds, you might say. Yeah, in the use of the um, the black ash, it really what it points out is the character Binyazi's exposure to to the essence of war the essence of death to the essence of spirit and blood and things that will alter and harm humanity. And when that happens, you basically become what they call disconnected from beauty way, the beauty of life. And in this film, Benyazi is exposed to war and death and things like that. So what happens is it interferes with who he is. And that's why he, some of the reactions that he had was hesitation and things like that, trying to make decisions. So it interfered with him mentally. And the role of the black ash is that's just one part, one small part of something that is done to protect certain individual from those evil things. And in certain ways, it, um, it reconnects them and rebalances them to the degree that they can perform um, under any circumstances to be able to handle any situation and things like that in much more um, appropriate and effective and best way. And I think that really is part of the uh, reasons why that part of this film is pointed that thing out. I guess one of the th 
thing is, uh, I'm interested in Albert is, um, if someone said, um, it takes days to use that ceremony, and all of a sudden these guys do it within a few hours or something. Um, I think about what the term in Navajo it's. Sohuntelo. What that translates is under certain extreme emergency situations. It's like there's a way there's a way out of everything. And in this case, during that the practice of the that the, the ceremony is these gentlemen are away from the land. They're away from all the people that would participate in having this ceremonial event. And they're away from that. They're in a war, in an atmosphere that is almost very, very, there's a tremendous distance. But they are able to implement the, the practices and the values in such a way to still achieve the spiritual purpose for this thing. And I think that's one of the unique things about part of the Navajo culture. No, Sergeant, I'm telling you it won't freeze up again. It's because your buddy smeared ash on your forehead. That's right. Because my buddy smeared ash on my forehead. You might say an example is a shell shock. That is the similar, similar connections. You ever see ghosts? When when a person gets to a certain depth, he comes loses his senses. He loses his balance of life. He loses everything, so he just aimlessly takes off. And so by doing this, it brings him out of that. He it really you might say, regenerates his senses to strengthen it, to survive, to continue his mission. Sounds beautiful. You, uh, you self-taught? My dad was always playing. You know what they say, you can't beat him? Yeah, no shit. My dad, he, uh, he gave me this thing. He used to call me the Pied Piper of the Pigs. He used to bring him in for feeding with this little tune I played. I know I ain't gonna get you to quit playing that thing, so, uh, like you just said, you can't beat him. I don't think it's gonna work. Well, I ain't got much else to do out here. What the hell? Okay. All right, you lead off. <clears throat> I'll follow you.
Playing opposite Christian, I guess the, really the, the beginning of it was the first time I was offered the, uh, the role, I spoke with Terrence, and the key thing that he said was, welcome to the family. And throughout that, that is what I sense from all these actors that I worked with, especially working with Christian, just the, uh, the total, he brought so much relaxation and the natural part of acting, I guess, into this, and really helped me to become more at ease and to be able to perform. And so if I did a decent job, it's um, Christian did an outstanding, and I was able to uh, try to feel a lot more relaxed and natural um, just working with him, and the guy was just totally... Uh, um, helpful in those areas and this makes you very comfortable um, and in this particular scene I play the flute he plays harmonica and is something like bringing two different cultures language thoughts and ideas together and being able to say in a way to blend them in and to achieve almost like perfection and anyway um, things like that those are just some incredible and memorable times that I had with wind talkers and uh, I reflect on that a lot and I'm able to I like to think that I'm really able to remember a lot of these things because it was almost like here I was never acted before and put in this position, I always ask myself, like, 20, 25, 30, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, what am I going to have? What kind of stories are, am I going to have? What kind of memories? I thought about that a lot and use that as a part of a motivational experience to just approach the whole thing in as a classroom setting just to feel and Albert touched some the essence of the five senses and the how they can make you a wonderful person and things like that. I try to use I guess all those senses just to breathe in and feel and smell the whole thing about this experience and to this day I can still think okay I'm on Oahu and we're running through this battle scene and it's like I can still smell the smoke like I can, just, I can still feel uh, Christian's voice here in the thick of all that chaos or things like that and things like that I remember and um, first time I had uh, Nick Cage and Adam and people like that and first time I met Terrence and John and it's like I remember those and um, it's been a wonderful experience very humbling and blessing and uh, I can't help but just to when I talk about these events this whole experience I smile 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 because this these are some incredible happy memories and that I've love to share that in so many different ways and I guess one way is just to allow you know having people see the film
I always thought deep in in the back of my mind that um, this could be the only film I ever do. And one of the things that really stands out too is um, we were doing a a shooting where in the part where um, towards the end of my I guess my life in this film and when I meet my death, I remember John Woo saying, "We're gonna do it again. We're gonna do it again." And they said, let's do it again. And I remember those guys, the stunt guys that were beating me up and things like that. We kind of got together and I, I said, and I think I said to them, I said, you know, guys, this is what you guys do for a living. And you guys are going to do this again, different places. I said, for me, I don't know if I'm going to ever do another film. And if I don't, this performance right now, is going to be my last ever. So let's do this. If you got to hit me harder, kick me harder, whatever, do it. I don't mind. I don't care. Let's do it like it's real. And those are some of the ways that I approach this film. And, and uh, just to really get yourself into the film, feel yourself in that environment, Think about your character. How how would they feel? How would they react? And things like that. And I guess those are some of the things that I've learned about acting. Is it's almost like you have to leave your own body, and you can do that if you really understand your character, and and basically you become the character. First time I met Albert actually was after I received the offer. I was um, asked to work to make some contacts with a cultural consultant, and through that gentleman, he directed me towards Albert Smith and things like that. And then I met, I made an appointment with Albert, and I met him at his home for the first time in Galt, New Mexico. I said, I gotta meet this man. So anyway, I met him and they invited me in. They had this huge dog <laughs> right there at the porch. And I guess it's the most gentle dog. And I pulled up and I see this dog and it's like, I'm honking the horn and finally, uh, he comes out and they invite me in. We sit down and we introduce ourselves and we started our conversation from there. And I said, wow, so you're one of them, huh? He says, yeah, and anyway, that's it. For the next six months, we went on location together and so many times we sat around, whether it, I was involved with the film or even on my days off, we would go. I would go out there, and sometimes I'd sit down with Albert, and you know, we just have a. I hope we have, still have a good relationship here. But uh, <laughs> the guy's incredible. Corbin! 
right, Joe. I do look like a nip. What the hell are you talking about? Put it on that Jap uniform. Trying to get a hold of one of their radios. Call off our guns. That's stupid. Shut up. Let him talk. He's not going out there. You're not the one in charge here, Anders. I got orders, Gunny. It's my responsibility. You kill your own! What's wrong with you? You kill your own! Find out soon enough, sir. What the hell are you doing there? I'm going with him. That's okay with you. Come on, right. For your die. Strap for prisoner. For your die. The action really betrayed both sides of the uh, armed forces, the Japanese as well as the Americans. The uh, disciplinary forces on both sides. And I know it's difficult to betray a combat scene because you can make it almost as, as close to the possibilities, but I guess it's difficult to portray the death as it is. Communication is one of the most effective tools used in, in order to achieve victory in war. And 
sometimes when there's a loss of communication or miscommunication can take place because of war. And because of that, a lot of times there's what we call friendly fire can start killing your own uh, comrades. And in one of the scenes in the film Wind Talker here is this happens to the group that um, Ben Yazi is attached to. And it's so interesting the way it's portrayed how he, because of friendly fire, his unit is being killed off and Ben Yazi's own radio has been destroyed. And But in the distance, the Japanese have the communication system and um, there's this plan that Ben Yazi is going to do what he can to go ahead and take that communication system and reestablish communication with um, the larger unit to seize the friendly fire that was taking place. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, Albert? Yes, that one, the one time it happened in our, in our division where we had moved just a little faster than what we were supposed to. And there was a, a request for a support fire from our own artillery. When that came, they had... Uh, had a different area. We had over, we have out, out move our, our designated area within a specific time. And so we were fired upon. It just so happened that we couldn't use the, uh, the code because there was no uh, code talker in the unit. So we had to use the revert back to the old, the other uh, language. And uh, finally, they got the word that we had already been in the area where, where we were supposed to have been beyond. And we out, outmaneuvered them. Sometimes we moved a lot faster than what was anticipated. So that will happen once in a while in, in that firing. And I remember one time in our training, this was supposed to be a training. And during the, the firing, one of those uh, ammo Who was to, uh, which was to be used to in the training. It was a phosphorus. More or less of a smoke screen was being supposed to be had been laid, and somehow there was a faulty amount of uh, fire, an amount of uh, power inside the shell. When it fired, there was not enough power to fire the distance required. So it fell short. Things like that happen, even in training.
and communication if it if there's signs of it sometimes would even endanger the lives of the training the trainees yeah and in order to redirect the friendly fires you know he goes up and actually successfully um, captures the radio the Japanese radio and then calls relates message back to the friendly and have them redirect fire things like that can happen in the wartime and actually even during training as Albert you have mentioned Ever not miss mail call, Anders? My mom says somebody takes the time to write a letter, you should read the letter. She let you drink your mother? No, but she's not here. Keani, I'll tell you that. It's rice wines, Jap sake, but it does the trick. There's so many things that I remember about the film, and one of the things that really impressed me was upon arriving, we took everything in such a realistic way, just beginning with military going through a marine boot camp. And um, anyway, I find that... Um, they had all these different consultants and advisors, people that had the expertise and experiences to actually make a film like this. Everything from um, Albert representing the Navajo code talkers to ensure that the authentic codes were used in the film. And then we have military advisors on set, uh, retired and active duty service people that were able to help portray and play the expert roles in ensuring the right weapons were used, the, dry, the right uniforms and things like that, and the right military terminologies were used and things like that. And then on the other hand, you had all these experts with that had demolitions experience So you have a network of people working together in order to really make this very successful. And I guess in a way life is like that. If you can have a vision and a focus to achieve something, you really need to depend on each other's talents and gifts and things like that and bring them all together. And that's what I saw in this film. First time I worked with Nick was like, um, I guess looking at it from the reservation and when I met him, it first time I met him was quite, I guess, quite an experience. And then what he brought to the set, the experience and the tremendous talent 
the tremendous present is what I saw in him that he was able to carry that. And I spent so much time on set, even during the times I was off, just to be able to look at him, study him. That is what I captured, and that is what I have. Uh, and I did the same thing with Adam, and Adam just taught me a lot about um, trying to be as natural as you can be. And I always said that he's taught me how to use your eyes, eye contact, and your postures and things like that. So they both have a, a lot of um, their own individualities as far as experience in filmmaking and being able to capture their characters. They've both been helpful in many ways, and I guess a lot of that was that I gained was through not so much verbal or close communication, but being able to see them from a distance and to concentrate on that, how they were able to perform. Because I guess all actors were like, they think certain things, they have, they bring certain qualities to the set that they really capitalize on it. And those are some of the things that were very interesting, just being able to observe these guys, not because I was there like um, maybe in awe of certain things, but to be able to think, okay, this is what they're going to do. Now, let me see what kind of diff how many different ways they're going to do this or portray this. And, and it's amazing just to now to sit here and go back and being able to see it on film because a lot of times I see these things, most of them, I would say at least a very high percent of it. I, I remember it's like where I was sitting, from what position I was, and I think, yeah, I saw that. That is it. This is how many times they attempted that. So both of those guys have had a tremendous influence on my working with film. And I guess the um, another guy is Mark, Mark Ruffalo, um, the guy to share a lot of different things with me as far as being able to perform and being able to be relaxed. Adam is not, not being Navajo. Um, he required some intense boot camp training in Navajo language. <laughs> but the guy's an actor and he's done, I think he's done, uh, there's the parts that I work with him. 
there's a lot of areas that I work with Adam as far as the ceremonial and the language aspects. In those areas, he's he's done really well. What the fuck? I ain't that drunk, Yazi. You cut that horse shit out. I guess, particularly, there's times that I remember we'd sit up after midnight going over some of these dialogues in Navajo and uh, because the Navajo language, if you pronounce something with a lot has to do with the tone. And if you mispronounce something, it can totally mean something else. And we spent a lot of times uh, just laughing and uh, me trying to tell him what he was supposed to say and this is what he said and he'd get into it and we'd laugh about it and things like that and some good times like that. Charlie's family owns the biggest flock in the Four Corners area. Oh shit. You a rich man, white horse? We do okay. Taxis. A whole stinking fleet of them. That's how I'm making my millions. And then I'm going back to the motherland. I'm going to build myself a villa on the cliffs of Santorini. Ah, Santorini, my friends, that's living. <laughs> Sounds nice. What about you, Z? Thinking about teaching. Ah, teaching. Bring a little something back to the reservation? Actually more interested in bringing some of the reservation back to the world. Hoping to teach college, American history. Oh, that's just what we need. Yazi teaching college boys about Custer Scalp and Little Bighorn. Yeah, and what about Kit Carson and what they did to Navo on the Long Walk? You ever read about that chick? Didn't think so. Oh. How about you, Joe? What? What are you doing after this mess? Gotta end sometime. Dear Joe, we got great news today. President Roosevelt announced the end of blackouts on Hawaii. We thought the day would never come. I met Kay to talk with him a while, and I saw quite a bit of his his part, and the family man, and then the film. And so he's very flexible and goes along with the very smooth of people. And Mr. Adam, I got to know him very well. He's a family man. He's quite knowledgeable of the film, various film ways. And I'm sure it really got him into a deeper feelings, a deeper sense of responsibility, not only to the film production, but also to himself.
I know why I let you tongue me back into doing this. <laughs> it ain't working. I don't think it's meant to be. Tell you the truth, I used to play for the sheep. What? Brought him in from the pasture like I was a mama sheep. <laughs> like he was a mama sheep, huh? <laughs> like a mama sheep. I always knew there was something a little funny about you, Charlie. Listen, why don't you play for the sheep? I'll play for the pigs. We'll see what happens, huh? We'll start off at the same time, though. scenes. Back in California, I had a chance. There was a, a scene, a night scene, where there was a bit of a smoke screen, and there were some trees in the background. And with the reflection, the shadows appearing against the screen, uh, the uh, smoke screen. And I told John, I said, John, I see we have some companies tonight. Did you get to see them? I said, did you welcome them? I said to him. He looked at me, he said, no, where is it? I haven't seen them. I said, look over there. I said, see, there's a screen, smoke screen, and then there's the trees, and then just below that, right against the smoke screen, I said, you see some, there's two, Two dancers, I said, one right after another. This was the image made by the tree, the shadows on the smoke screen. I said, those two, two Indian dancers, I said, they're following each other right down uh, along the road, I said. Then he looked at me and sort of grinned. Yes, I know I see them, he said. <laughs> yes, he's very, he, he takes it uh, and... He's there almost on a daily, on a daily basis. He sees and directs and. I didn't know you were an artist. Oh, it's stupid. It's just. Uh... Something I would do as a kid on my grandmother's kitchen table. That's nice. You Catholic? Used to be. I was thinking about when they confirmed me. I was eight and they anointed me with the holy water. And I remember they told me I was a soldier of Christ. I guess somewhere along the way, I must have switched units. It's oil. 
They don't use holy water to confirm. They use oil. I was raised Catholic, too. Mission school on the reservation. That's <laughs> funny. Fathers didn't like us talking Navajo at mass. Of course, one Sunday I forgot. They punished me by tying me to the radiator in the basement for two days. I think I was eight, too. Well, they're sure letting you talk Navajo now. <laughs> One of the things I remember about John is um, being exposed to this for the first time, this film industry. You learn that there's all these different chains of positions, powers, and you try to understand that whole system. And John being the director one time, I guess if there was a problem with anything, I might take it here, and then they would relate it to this one. So it's all this, and then you get the sense sometimes, who do I really talk to? Which one, which one? And John, one time, uh, sits down with me and says, I, I want to talk to you. So I sit down, and he tells me, he says, if there's any concern, anything that you see with this film or anything, just come to me. And that makes you feel good when someone can tell you, can say, rather than saying, if you have a concern, I'll direct you to the right place or something. John says, come to me, and I will help you. And that's this one sample of John, and, and John Woo is um, this one from what I observed was, was sort of quiet and the man of few words, but when he got together with Terrence, well, what did they communicate? But other than that, I always thought... Um, I always, I believe that someone who don't talk much, well, I believe you can only do one thing at one thing at a time. So someone who's constantly talking is really thinking, I think. In John's case, a man of few words, the rest of the time he's in this deep, tremendous thought about things. And I think that gives him a lot of uh, creativity to work with. He's very humble and was absolutely wonderful to my family and treated them with so much respect and just little things like giving a toy to my kids or something. That's, those are the things that, um, that really stands out. I want out. Well, you and me and every other mother's son, we all want out. Well, as long as there's a Tojo and a Hitler out there, we have to keep on fighting. Is that understood? I always thought that if you gave John Woo a canvas, he says, here, John, do a painting for me. And then you leave, and then you come back, and then what you'll see is you'll see these, this painting where red, he's... He might have reinvented the color red and blue and yellow and all these different colors, and it would be so rich with uh, energy and things like that. And uh, so I think John needs to do a painting for me. <laughs> That's kind of a way I would describe John. 
been good to me. You don't have to cry. You're going to be all right. Yeah, he took jokes real well. There's one time, well, quite a number of times, I'd say. He'd uh, take up conversations with anybody. Like one time, he was, he had a little hair out of place up on top, and my wife was standing there. To, he went like this. He couldn't put it down. He noticed that. So, so she says, "Why don't you use your your saliva?" And she went. She didn't tell him, although verbally, but she motioned. John went like this and then put it back. He laughed and went on. <laughs> That's the kind of a person I knew him. He's down to our level, to anybody's level, I'd say. He's a very good director. One of the most common questions people ask me is, wow, what was it like to work with John? Can you believe that? John Wu is directing this movie? You mean John is directing this movie? I didn't know it was John Woo. I can't wait to see this movie. I'm a big John Woo fan. People say that throughout my travels. And it's like, yeah, I work with John. Oh, gosh, did you get his autograph? Did you get a picture of him? And people like that. So, you know, one of the uh, ironic things, I guess, is when I first got involved with this film, um, I wasn't much... One, I never had an ambition to act. Two, I wasn't really too thrilled with, um, wasn't really into watching movies and things like that. So when I learned that it, it's going to star Nicolas Cage, and I remember thinking, Nick Cage, now who's Nick Cage? And someone said, uh, the guy who showed in um, Leaving Las Vegas, and I'm sitting there, hmm, let me see. Oh, that one? Okay, I, I can't place the face, and... It went on and on, and then someone says, face off. I said, this John Travolta. No, the other guy, that's Nicolas Cage. And I said, oh, really? And then um, even when it said, when I learned that it was John Woo was going to direct this, and I, and I remember thinking, who's John Woo? John Woo, yeah, he directed Face Off, Mission Impossible, and... But what I learned later, what I was talking about earlier was, there's so many people, there's so many John Woo fan out there, and Nick Cage fan and things like that, and a lot of them are coming from uh, Indian people, Navajos out there, and uh, it's just great to share my experiences with people back home on the reservation and being able to talk about the times that I spent with these guys and. People always uh, open their ears to hear about him.
Being a, a Navajo code talker, being captured, yes. Well, that's. I guess the uh, Navajos would would question that, but as a uh, military way of looking at the Navajos as as the code, being a center of communication, and also the uh, secret document, there would be something new to them, and whether they would accept the Navajo being killed by another Marine, that would be at the expense of a life. They'd have to, I guess, rethink it and accept it if, if there ever should have happened. It would be a new, a new way of military life. If there, perhaps, maybe, if there's ever a chance again for the Navajo language to be used in the warfare. But nowadays, though, it's, you have all the computers working. Whether ever there would be a chance, I don't know. This was probably the most intense, emotionally draining, mentally training that I ever did in the in the whole process of filming this thing. There's a part where my reaction to the death of Ox, which is Christian Slater. It's like Roger Willie had to leave his body and replace it with Charlie Whitehorse. And to actually feel that, to feel the the uh, the feelings, the the pain and what might have happened should this have been true and things like that um i remember shooting this for the first time and when they said cut it was like i had just worked out it was exhausting and then we did it again about four or five times and it was like um that was it and the other thing I remember is um, something I learned is the shooting filming is, I guess a lot of people like to rehearse and things like that. What I learned for me, particularly applying to my scene, my reaction to Christian Slater is that um, rather than rehearsing, I'd rather go ahead and let's start taping it right from the start because uh, rehearsing what it did for me was that I would give it my best and all of a sudden it would never have been captured or something. And I think in this particular scene, we had to rehearse it one time first. First time we did it, we rehearsed. It totally drained me and I thought I couldn't do that again. There's no way I could do that again. How can I do it again and things like that? It was like, I was like, God, why didn't we just go ahead and take that? And so it was wonderful for them to say, we're going to shoot it now. And it took me a while to get back into that character. And then they'd say, cut. And we shot it a couple of times. And then they say, we're going to do close up. And by that time, you're thinking, wow, 
uh, so exhausting, and that was probably the the turnaround point of me learning about how it is to become your character and to act, how exhausting it can be. Um, very powerful. If I had one thing to remember that could, that has great potential right there. I've got a lot more respect for actors <laughs> because uh, I learned that you can rehearse all you want. You can say you got your lines down, you got everything down. You can, everything's perfect. But the key thing is when it's, when the, when the time is there to actually record it and there's completely, complete silence and there's the word action. When this is the real thing, that's the determining factor is what I learned. Um, I guess sometimes you could have it or you might not. If I do any other films in the future, um, if I have the option to go ahead and reshoot it the first time right from the beginning without rehearsing, um, I don't know, I think it would probably would help me perform better, I guess, maybe. Um, and just knowing that I did it, not just for rehearsal, but to see uh, for for the purpose of capturing it and keeping it and using it. I think there's other areas that requires rehearsing and requires rehearsing in different ways. Or I guess it all depends. I guess another scene, you can rehearse that and then rehearse it a few times and then shoot it again. Because I don't, I think it's a different setting. It's not as intense or emotional. Um, I think if something requires a total transformation of your gestures and your whole body, your emotions, and something very mentally stressing or straining or physically demanding. Um, those particular scenes are things that I, I would prefer to go ahead and just shoot it from the start. Shooting the shit. Looking for somebody else's ass to kick. You think too much. time I've ever been accused of that. This star, the rising of life, the rising of the uh, spiritual being, Example of the rising sun leaving from from the world, from the presence, as if you are asking for the goodness which was here to continue into the future. It's a good, good send-off for your being, 
to continue on into the future. From all the directions, not only ahead of you, behind you, under you, above you. From your mouth, from your spiritual ways of life. That you don't just think of yourself, but you think also with your with your environment, the total environment, because you belong with the total environment. And therefore, you're saying farewell to the above, along with the holiness, you might say, the uplifting of yourself. What he's doing is, one, acknowledging the fact that Charlie Whitehorse has left, and he's able to accept the fact that he's gone. He partakes corn pollen, and corn pollen in Navajo symbolizes the beauty way. So when he prays, he says, I think he says, to us let their beauty, from all directions let there be beauty. To him let there be beauty, meaning to Charlie Whitehorse. And then he partakes the corn pollen. And that is like the beginning again for him to get back into what his role is, what he's there for, to begin his life again. And then he ends that by opening his arms with the rising sun because the light travels and hits him and he greets it. Because from the east, that's where new things come from each day. Word by word, you can take the Navajo words that he used and really break them down. And then in the end, it can give you a strong sense of the Navajo's concept of life. That's what that is. Destination is that big piece of rock you see over there. The last defensible ridge on this island. Now thinking is, we take the mount, Saipan's pretty much out. <laughs> Yesterday, bombers beat the shit out of that rock. The brass is nervous. They expected more resistance over there. Now they want us to go over and check it out. So where the hell they got us now? Well, going up the mountain. Have ourselves a little peek. That code talker is out front for a reason. And that's exactly where I need him to be. But there's still a problem between the two of you. I would like to straighten that out right here, right now. No problem here, guy. That's good. But there's still one here. You just do what you're supposed to do, Sergeant. Nothing more, nothing less. Anders? You got another letter.
the magnitude of this movie is going to be so huge and not only that but the things that it contains and part of that is we've been talking about the Navajo culture tradition and languages and things like that and I believe this film is going to in many areas revitalize and regenerate the interest to really learn more about Navajo identity, Native Americans, and things like that and in our education system and great things like that. Very educational. It is true that Navajos really never talked about it. But now, since the students have opened up quite a bit of this, they have uncovered what was really never brought out in the open. So there's still quite a quite a large number that are still not ready to face it, but been in so many recent years, so many world conflicts, and many of the Navajos have gone into various parts of the world, which have opened up their ways meant to mingling with the, uh, the new generations. How far back can they go? That remains to be handled. Yes, whether we were, we might, as they they had always said that they had predicted the faster. The world moves, the faster our generation moves. We're going to leave some behind. Which I think is happening. Like looking at the, um, the machinery, machine age. Like in my days, it didn't bother me with my dad, my uncles, my relatives, whenever they turn on the vehicle, turn on the motor. It didn't bother me. But now, my great-granddaughter, who's just 14 months old, she hears them machine come on and a motor. She's ready to go. At a diaper age, recognizing that at a diaper age, whenever that TV comes on, she gets into that mood of dancing, whatever is coming on. In my days, it didn't bother me. And our elders used to say, one of these days, your children are gonna speak a language that you won't understand. 
So those things have come about. And that's why I say, how far back can, can we compare the generations of the present time to, the, to moving back? How do we outgrow? And what are the consequences? Uh, in in We need to somehow put those two together and maintain certain amount of what is behind and what is we're moving into. DA, yeah. See, this is the machine age, and we're talking about the spiritual. I told you to stay with Gunny. Gunny's gone. You can't kill me, you son of a bitch. I'd never kill one of our own. We're not gonna make it out of here, are we, Joe? I'm running out of ammo here, Joe. I don't want to die in this shithole. You're not gonna die. Nobody else is gonna die. We're gonna make it. We're gonna make it out of here.
I think the way the Navajos, there are two to everything. Just like the day and night, the opposites are positive and negative. A war and peace. And male and female. Even in plants, there's a male plant and a female plant. Winter and summer. There's two in their way of looking at life. There's two, cold and hot. I think, Albert, that this part of this film is it deals with those the duality within the Navajo identity, and those duality is Hojonja, the beauty way. The other one is Anaja, the enemy way. And each one, it's part of life. And in order to achieve so many things, both sides, they have a they play a major role. And in this film, Wind Talkers, it takes on the path of Anaja, Anaja, stories and things that go with the enemy way. And then there's a balance. One balances the other. Like, things are out of balance for war. And so they have to bring it back to reality, back to the balance. And I think there's uh, some of the things that we deal with here in this film is, let's say, the character um, Benyazi, he comes into the war with a good balance. And then it takes him out of balance and he gets back in balance. And as I see a lot of that, even the friendship. In the beginning, you have certain things going on that will kind of tell you that maybe there's some racism going on or something. But then in the end, you develop this balance. And throughout the whole film, that's what I've noticed. And then the friendship. It's got a balance, even the characters. Yeah. Nicholas Cage and Adam Beach and Christian Slater and myself. You've got two opposites. It's a balance. And then you, I guess even the whole film, you got two bodyguards, two coat talkers. That itself is a balance. Uh, it's so interesting how the concept of balance and duality, you can see a lot of that in this film. There's a high point in the emotions, then there's a cooling off. And then there's two, even the, the essence of bonding, there's two sides. Like here, this is like all about men. It's a family. And when those Navajo co-talkers were leaving, they left their families. They have a balance there. And, and even things like that. But even uh, like during the day, 
things are happening. And then the night comes along. Once in a while, a night fight goes on. But I guess to a certain point, there's a slack-off, a resting period, and it starts all over again. And sometimes there's an objective of, of, of attaining certain, certain areas throughout the day. The other thing that I notice is that's the first time experience, experiencing film, the whole approach about the sequence of shooting it. One of the things I always ask myself was, now how in the world are they going to put all this together? You know, how do you keep records on this? And Anyway, now that I see it, it's like, that's what John had envisioned that he was going to create this, I guess. And I guess my point is, another balance in this movie, it's like the way it starts. It opens up with the incredible landscape, our homeland. Yeah. And then it concludes at the end of the movie. That's how it is again. Same way with the actors. They seem to go up and down. He's still out there, Joe. There's not many. How about that colt? How many in there? I imagine one. Given your orders. Shut up, Ben. participation in this is that I wanted also to assist as much as possible to closest to what it really was. 
and I've come to deal with it a lot closer since my retirement. I've been revising some of my my outlook since taking part in the actual use of the code, the actual being on the fire, and the whole torment, losing many friends like in the film. And I look back on it and some of those are uncertainties. And so it, this film comes very close to it. And it also brings out the, uh, the traditional way of life, looking at life and really knowing the difference and the, the existence of what our ancestors, our elders have mentioned, the balance of life. There has to be a balance of life. One can't do without the other because uh, we might say there can't be a day only. There has to be a night. There can't be summer all the time. There has to be a winter. That's the last of them, Joe. answer your question, I'm listening. Your letters are the only thing that keep me going out here. As far as writing back, sorry it's taken me this long. I hope everyone who sees this film can walk away feeling a sense of history, their identity, and be able to walk from this film and in somewhere, somehow, some way that the overall quality of their own personal lives that may be enhanced in some positive way and just to be able to say, you know, I have life, I'm human. Everything around, um, around me, I've got to live with that and just be a lot more appreciative, respectful, and learn to share and love each other and through generosity and all this. What about you, Albert? What do you hope to people can walk away? Yeah, with? I, I think the same way too, that 
No matter where you are on Mother Earth, that it is a treasure that we live on, on Mother Earth. That is the freedom, that is the spirit, and on our daily basis, we uh, share the spirit of humans, the spirit of life together, and that's a just about the only way that all of us can live on Mother Earth. I hope that uh, when people watch this film that, like I said, it just really restores in a lot of ways just the, the freedom to express your spirit in such a powerful and positive way. And I, it sometimes it bothers me when people call children kids. It uh, takes away the, the encouragement to younger generations. Comparing someone with the animal that eats grass, comparing someone with with a non-thinking person. I don't know where we got the word kids. I think they, they should remind themselves that the children are the spiritual child. And as such, they should be reckoned with and giving them the courage. The, uh, the knowledge and the uplifting of the dear, the, our spiritual world with our spiritual leaders that we look up to, to recognize. No matter how, how small we might be, Ask only who are the Lissan Zaho. Benar at Ilting, Benar, 
Thank you, everyone.